0: This is episode 18 of the Immunology Podcast, Immune Microscopy with Dr. Tri Fan. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcasts, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Tri Fan from the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and the University of New South Wales. On the podcast to talk about his his research using intravital two-photon microscopy to track the origin and fate of cells critical immune responses yes we do deep dive into immune microscopy here and as a fellow microscope nerd we got very very nerdy in all the good ways we've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights immunology news coming up but first
1: StemCell is hiring. StemCell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, StemCell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They are looking for creative, driven people to join their international team, explore more than 60 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication at jobs.stemcell.com.
0: Well, Brenda.
1: How are things over there? Is the turkey already purchased for Thanksgiving?
0: I don't know because it's at my in-laws and I don't have to worry about it. And it means we well. get a four-day weekend next weekend, which will be most excellent.
1: Well, good for you. We do get some you know, Black Friday offers here, so I guess that's good. Yay, consuming.
0: Yeah, yeah. The fact that you guys have Black Friday as well is kind, of, is kind of weird. But
1: Yeah, but we do not go and go all crazy and, you know, just camp outside. Uh, our like our version is Best Buy to get a new TV. We just order stuff online mostly, I'd say. It's
0: not an injury on Black Friday making the front page of the news. It's not Black Friday.
1: Indeed. We have European version, you know, a little bit more civilized.
0: All right. Uh, I'll start with my COVID paper du jour, which is titled Identification of a Therapeutic Interfering Particle, a Single Administration SARS-CoV-2 Antiviral Intervention with a High Barrier to Resistance. Uh, It's in cell, uh, accepted the 2nd of November. It's uh, still in the pre-proof mode online. Uh, First author is Sonali Chaturvedi, and the last author is Lior Weinberger. So this is an interesting paper because I learned a lot about virology to do this. So viral replication is pretty inaccurate. And sometimes when a virus replicates, it makes a form of itself that inhibits its own replication. So that's like a known natural phenomenon that happens. But there's been a question for a long time of whether this could be used as a therapeutic by creating a partial version of a virus without Necessarily, all the things in the middle that you dope in, the virus will naturally replicate it because it has the five prime up, the five prime UTR and the three prime cap on it. So it looks like it be cut up a lot of the juicy middle. Maybe throw a reporter in for good work, and but it's replication incompetent. So it like replicates, but it soaks, it soaks up the replication cycles of the virus's proteins to make a bunch of it, not a bunch of the actual virus. So this is called a therapeutic interfering particle, a TIP. And long story short, is they made a TIP for COVID, for SARS-CoV-2, and showed that it works. Essentially, um, and but then there's features of this which get really important. That if it's too interfering, it won't replicate itself and will kill itself out. So it can't be so interfering as to completely prevent viral replication processes because then it won't make more of itself. But it has to be kind of this right sweet spot. And so they kind of do like a, um, a shotgun system where they have like two or three different ones that they go with and then look at how they work and kind of optimize based on known computer modeling to get, the, to get the ones that they use in the study. And of course, then they pick the best one. Um, so you kind of want this particle that will jump in line pretty well to get replicated, but not so well that the virus doesn't do any replication. And they show that in, in a variety of systems, in vitro, and vivo with hamsters, it reduces the infection viral load twofold. Too long, excuse me, too long. So 100-fold. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna talk about delivery systems, which could be a lipid nanoparticles. In fact, I mentioned intranasal lipid nanoparticles as their mechanism, which kind of goes back to our talk about IgA in intranasal administration of medication. And through a lot of work, they show that it indeed can work. And then they actually look and make sure that there's not a mutational resistance here. And so the virus can just mutate out of this, which it doesn't. There's also some concern that these types of products could produce push the virus to evolutionarily adapt and become more dangerous, because it's creating a, rep, a pressure on the you know, selective pressure on its replication processes and sensitivities. That's still an outstanding question because they just don't have enough data from this paper. But they do show that after many passages with this co-cultured, it doesn't develop some like super virus or develop resistance to it quickly. So there you go. You can take like the ends of the viral RNA, stick them together with a little bit of stuff in between and make a product that inhibits regular viral Replication by being a basically a a you know ribas you know the pseudo sink.
1: That is really cool. I never never thought of. I was not aware of the existence of these viral particles that could interfere with the with the replication of the actual virus. I think it's so exciting now also that we have more and more different ways of therapeutic molecules or therapeutic uh, products to to help reduce the sever- severity of, of COVID. My question is, like, do they discuss if this would be applied therapeutically, for example, through a nasal spray or something like yeah. that? What is the timeline that they so should be they... administering?
0: So they look at even administering it a day or two after known infection, and it works because it drops the replication. So you want it to be, like, really bad. <clears throat> you want the You want it so that the virus the the RNA polymerase will work decently well on this but the the, the human ribosome doesn't make anything useful out of it and mm-hmm. so it's been the, the human ribosome that's been hijacked will go and try to make a bunch of nothing right but, but the RNA polymerase can't like get stuck on it and so you're not replicating the virus anymore
1: that's very cool yeah and are they, like, planning on moving this forward? Uh, do, they, do I think that they're unsure.
0: Care? It seems very proof of concept. I think there are some concerns about, like, the evolutionary biology here of shoving in yeah. a, something that is this unknown. But we'll see.
1: All right. That's very nice. Uh, but then it's good. It's a good kind of segue into my COVID paper because why have one when you can have two? Uh, well, why and have I think... one
0: year of pandemic when you can have two years of
1: pandemic? <laughs> Well, there you go, you know, it just, the rules just keeps applying. Um, and this paper has been quite popular in science Twitter uh, and uh, because it identified very nicely pre like kind of non-spike directed uh, immunity that results in a kind of aborted SARS-CoV-2 infections in highly exposed Individuals. So, what do we have here? We have a, a, a study uh, done from the lab of Mala Maini at University College London. Uh, a bunch of six first authors, of a big collaboration here, and they focused on a group of people, which are uh, most of them in the scales uh, cases health workers that are known to have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and have all many of their colleagues uh, tested positive by PCR, have a positive serology against COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, but they don't develop any kind of detectable uh, infection by PCR or by serology. So the question is, what are these people? How are these people preventing infection? And why don't these people develop uh, immunity and all kind of humoral immunity, like we most people do. And so what is really cool, so they 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 look at this, they have samples from a healthcare workers, some of some uh, some blood samples from before, some blood samples throughout the beginning of the pandemic, and they show that these patients are in a cohort of people. They are uh, as I as I mentioned, healthcare workers. That are highly are very much exposed, and most of the this uh, workers do have do exhibit infection, but this group doesn't. They um, they show that is very rare not to exhibit seroconversion after being PCR positive. Uh, so it really does seem that this patient, this these people that have not really developed a. A, a detectable infection and when they start looking into their their blood so they say well if we don't see any b cell responses what about the t cells and this is really really cool they show that these people actually do have a response a t cell response against non-structural proteins mostly about uh, around what they uh, kind of call general the replication transcription uh, transcription complex of, of SARS-CoV-2, which includes RNA polymerases and helicases that are um, related to, to viral replication. And these are not as highly expressed during infection as the structural proteins, which makes it very interesting to understand why are these, these uh, proteins being targeted. So these people, they show that these people do have a higher level of, of T cells that are responding by l to this antigens. And they also show by using a marker that they previously, previously described, which is uh, an in- interferon-inducible uh, uh, gene, which is um, IF27. And they show that in, in their previous work, they show that IF27 is uh, positively... Um, Related to COVID infection, and they can actually this this marker comes up in blood earlier than actual PCR positivity, and they see show that this non the seronegative patient or the seronegative healthcare workers actually have a higher IF 20, 127 baseline. We suggest a that they actually have had an infection ongoing, that was mediated by which respond which the response was mediated by T cells, so. So basically what they show is that these patients are actually aborting a full-blown infection by very early on picking up the virus through the expression of this other group of antigens. Um, It is not clear to them whether the reason these healthcare workers have this immunity is because they are either have been exposed to other coronaviruses. There is some level of conservation of these proteins between coronaviruses more than for other, for the structural proteins, or whether these this, uh, people, by being frequently exposed to very low levels of SARS-CoV-2 because they are wearing all this protective gear, but they are kind of constantly exposed, maybe this allows this T-cell response to generate without a full-blown B-cell response uh, accompanying it. So I thought it was really cool because there was also other um, papers a lot earlier in the in the pandemic that showed that there were some pre-existing immunity against COVID. And I think this is probably similar, the similar idea. Uh probably are kind of both these studies are looking at the same thing. And it is uh, interesting to not understand whether it is due to other coronaviruses or it's because of these baseline. Uh, ex- exposure that allows the development of the T cell responses uh, in this in these people. So it was, it was very cool, and I think, yeah, it was a very popular uh, topic lately, and it was really really nice uh, paper to look at.
0: So, did they find any genetic differences in those people who had this early response or not, or did they not look there?
1: No, they don't look into what do you mean, like SNPs or stuff like that. You
0: know, host genetics of any form
1: no they don't they don't go into that okay they look into other things just age and group but they don't they don't see any other specific um markers
0: and and just to be clear t cells get the job done
1: t cells get the job done even before b cells have the chance to react to this antigen so yeah i'm not surprised i have to say
0: all right well we'll have to move away from COVID now unfortunately but not unfortunately, and go to something completely uh, different, molecular dead man switch for viral infection. So I guess still COVID, but not really. So taking a high level view here, there are, there's something called the guard hypothesis that this paper just spend some time describing. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain this before I go into the paper. And this is the idea that a host cell that's infected by something has another mechanism that notifies itself that it's been infected, right? So it monitors or guards critical paths, so that um, disruption of those paths by the virus, or virulence factors provokes an immune response. Okay, so when a virus develops an evolutionary escape mechanism, to or evolutionary mechanism to, say, turn off your cytokine signaling. It senses that the fact that its cytokine signaling is turned off and then does something. So this is a paper about self-guarding. So now to dive in, it's called Self-Guarding of MORC3 Enables Virulence Factor Triggered Immunity. This is by Moritz M. Gates, first author and last author is Russell E. Vance, and it came out in Nature uh, on 10th of November. So. In this case, they, just diving right in, they show that MOCR, which I'm going to try to find it, because they they only say the name of it once. Let me get it in here. So it's a nuclear body protein, which it doesn't actually, they don't actually specify what it stands for. That's why I was having trouble finding it. So the way it works though, pretty simply, interferon is a main uh, mechanism by which viral mediated immunity is managed. And certain viruses, in this case, herpes simplex one, tries to modulate interferon production. So it has something called ICP zero, which targets proteins for degradation through the sumo pathway. And in doing so, it drops down interferon signaling generally. However, this paper shows that there's a counter effect. That's a self guard. So. MOCR inhibits interferon production. And how it works is that this this virulence factor in herpes, ICP0, causes MOCR to be degraded, thus leading to activation of interferon. So the virulence factor, so it's a self-guard in that the virus goes to degrade this protein as part of its function And in doing so, auto-generates the interferon response against it. So it's like this double whammy negative regulator. Um, I think this is one of the first examples of a self-guarding being discovered, which is why it's a big deal. And it's independent of the sting and IRF3 and IRF7 pathways. So double stranded DNA sensing, it's not through that, this is this whole sumo mediated ubiquitinization and degradation process. And MOCR is happens to be a target of this ICP zero protein that does this, and that then leads to the activation of the very pathway the virus is trying to turn off and kills the virus. And so they do all the knockouts to show that it's important and it works this way. and if you get rid of mocr you don't have this response and then the virus doesn't die and that but other pathways if you block like sting or what have you you can see different effects because they show that they're independent so they do all the knockout work show that they are really independent pathways and basically put it all together in a pretty succinct paper it's not a large paper it's only four page five pages um and they also show that this MOCR is there's a regulatory MRE and it's location dependent because all the genes that it seems to activate are in chromosome nine. Um, and that drives interference signaling all in that loci. This is not true of other cells. This is not true in embryonic stem cells. It is only true in monocytes that they found. So there you go. Apparently, we have a molecular dead man switch um, through a pathway with it that the viruses attempt to. Inhibit, you know, downregulate proteins as a virulence factor actually causes its own death.
1: It's funny that it's monocyte specific. What I guess that doesn't make sense to have this in other cell types is because monocytes are particularly susceptible to infection with this virus and thus they need some extra lines of protection.
0: So I don't think they went through T cells and other stuff on here. Um, but they went through vir- they went through mature immune cells that could be infected by HSV, such as monocytes, um, and I think it's a cell culture question as well.
1: Okay, are they using monocyte cell lines? They are. Well, it's it's nice and ironic that the virus is doing all this work to stop the interferon response, and then it just doesn't get to do it.
0: Right. Because
1: redundancy is very important. Clearly.
0: Yep. And then the the other targets of the sumo pathway. Um, because it degrades sumo dependent if 16 and ND10 nuclear bodies. So it, it blocks so it this uh what is it, ICP0 pathway that the virus has as virulence factor does block other downstream things from being affected. So it does block the other interferon, but it right. then causes this other thing to die to release interferon. you're damned
1: and that is the purpose of ice sorry that is the purpose of icp zero right to To block this interfering pathways
0: yes it just then happens to block a protein that blocks the pathways or degraded protein blocks (laughs) the pathways okay oops
1: (laughs) he's bad well uh that's what you get when you don't do the job right then uh this virus does not deserve to infect monocytes clearly Um, Okay, so for my second paper today, I'm moving, I'm staying with T-cells, moving away from viruses, um, and talking about a nice publication in Cell Reports from the lab of Catherine Wu at Harvard, uh, first authors Pavan Bakuretti and Elham Elham Azizi. Um, The paper's called Mapping the Evolution of T-cell States During Response and Resistance to Adopted Cellular Therapy. And it's a nice paper that looks, uh, takes advantage of a study from the 90s. Apparently, clearly, they had a lot of samples left from this, from the study, and they decided to use it as a proof or kind of a, of a model to study, uh, try to identify characteristics of T-cells that associate with a kind of immune therapy potential. So let me just Explain a little bit. They use, uh, they take on um, samples from a study of um, a stem cell, uh, allogeneic stem cell transplantation uh, for, for patients with uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia. These people get a stem cell uh, treatment, so bone marrow transplant, uh, which is CD8 depleted. So CD8, uh, they 8s uh, are depleted from these transplants usually because they can mediate graft versus host disease, and therefore you take this out uh, to, to to reduce toxicity of the of the transplantation. And uh, but you still have, for example, CD4 T cells and other immune cells are still can still be included in this uh, bone marrow, and they. Basically, patients after this treatment, which was mostly done in the 90s, uh, afterwards, uh, um, there's other newer treatments, uh, tyrosine inhibitors, um, they're more, um, they're more uh, popular now. But from this patient, so they have a set of 12 patients, six of which were long-term responders and six of which were non-responders, so the the tumor in their bone marrow relapsed. And they're trying to identify from the T-cell response that is kind of pre-existing in these patients and kind of after treatment observed, if they can identify characteristics that differentiate responders from non-responders. So very straightforward. Uh, They have, so they do single cell transcriptomics, bulk. They also do uh, chromatin accessibility profiles. They uh, look at the T-cell clonality of the bone marrow biopsies to look at the different clones of T cells found there. And they find that, uh, they find a couple of things. So again, so they look at the single cell RNA-seq and they generate clusters of different types of cells that it can be found in the bone marrow before and after treatment. And they identify certain clusters that associate with um, responders, non-responders. It's a very this paper does a really deep dive into bioinformatic as uh, kind of algorithms and bioinformatic models to uh, identify this cluster it's not terribly it's not very straightforward so the authors do show that they need to do a couple of normalizations and some take into consideration the variability between the patients but they find a model which allows them to identify differences between responders and non-responders so Bioinformaticians, if you want to take a look and give me a, and send me some tips, let me know. Um, and they do find that the clusters that I, and this is not very surprising, right? The clusters that are associated with response are mostly uh, associated with T cell activation and what is traditionally considered T cell exhaustion. And the non responder clusters are more associated with a variety of dysfunctional states. Such as and have gene clusters associated with hypoxia, with energy, and and so it does seem that they, they cannot identify a specific dysfunction uh, uh, signature, but more of kind of a a diverse diverse reasons that can drive a dysfunction in the T cells of non responders. What they see is that um, they uh, identify what are these kind of have uh, previously been described as the uh, T-exhausted and the T-precursor-exhausted uh, cell signatures that are uh, found, were initially described in Murin models of exhaustion against viral infection. And again, they find that they can d- identify this precursor-exhausted and exhausted cells in the different clusters, and that responders scored highest for the precursor-exhausted. Are mostly considered to be able to generate new effector populations upon some kind of immunological stimuli, either antigen exposure or, or immunotherapy, checkpoint inhibition, or in this case, the introduction of new immune cells that can detect and can uh, respond against the, the, the tumor, the tumor antigens from this the, the, um, the leukemia. So they also do analysis from the histone accessi- um, chromatin accessibility, and they generate a, a model that, in which they, they identify transcriptional factors, uh, transcription factors, and networks of exp- expression. And there's really nice, worth take a look. They can identify specific clusters of expression that are associated with specific transcription factors. And again, they identify. Uh, transcription factors are known to correlate with kind of good um, productive T cell responses. What they see is that they find that the T cell responses that are characterizing these uh, patients that are responding actually come, most of the CD8 T cells come from the actual, from the real, from the patient that, and not from the graft, from the, the, trans, the transfused cells they find that what they what they conclude very nicely is that the the trans trans uh, the cells that had been transfused from the from the donor to the host are not the ones mediating the graft versus the graft versus leukemia response in this patient but they are actually reinvigorating the the pre-existing response in the patient uh, mainly by for example adding cd4 cells that can uh, co-stimulate CD8 cells and other other immune cells that can mediate uh, more immune activation. And that uh, this really, the capacity of the host cells to reactivate upon the addition of the new cells determines the outcome of the patient in this model. Very nice uh, work. Uh, a lot of bioinformatics for those uh, looking into that. And yeah, it was very very interesting to read.
0: The fact that it's the host T cells or the CD eight cells is really interesting. That the the transplant's really just in reinvigorating them is fascinating. I mean, that's immune yeah. therapy is right in a way without the with yeah cell transplant.
1: It was really I also really like that that uh that conclusion. I, I hadn't thought about it, but I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: No, well, that that's a big one. That's a big conclusion there. All right. Well, we'd love to keep talking papers, and we're going to be speaking to Dr. Trifan at the, Har- at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in the University of New South Wales in just a moment. But before we get to that...
1: Are you interested in differentiating human pre-reported stem cells into monocytes? The Stem Diff Monocyte Kit from StemCell Technologies generates millions of monocytes ready for downstream assays or further development into macrophages or dendritic cells. Learn more at stemcel.com forward slash monocyte kit. Speaking to us today from several time zones away is Dr. Tree Fan, who is a senior principal research fellow at the Garvan Institute of Medical Research at the University of New South Wales in Australia, where he heads the intravital microscopy and gene expression lab. Dr. Fan, it's great to have you here with us today. Uh, greetings uh, to the future, to f- tomorrow over there.
0: Hi, how you going? Yeah, this is like our, one of, we had one other guest from Australia, but this is the first time we've done it where we've had Brenda in the evening, myself in the afternoon and our guest in the morning. I don't think we've done this before. So you're making podcast history here for pan worldwide time zone, spanning days and uh, times everywhere. Well, it's a very exciting times. It is brought to you by the power of everyone being virtual. So thank you for being here today. I I was super excited to get to talk to you because I'm also a uh, glorified microscope nerd, uh, but I come from the land of single molecule biophysics in my past past life, um, two past lives ago. And so I was very excited to see you know, your your innovative work and approaches using two photon microscopy. So I was hoping we could start there. But since when I, you know, start counting large numbers, like two, no, sorry, it's kidding. Um, when I start saying photon microscopy and intravital microscopy, I think some people know how it works, but not others. And particularly I was hoping so I was hoping you could A explain to, you know, the scientific crowd here. We have a pretty scientifically literate audience since it's usually mostly, you know, scientists listening. But explain how it works and why, in particular, it's two photon. Because I think that's part of the key to the technology that gets lost. Like, oh yeah, two photon is kind of a fancy microscope. But but why you need two photon for intervital and how it works and what you're able to do with it because it works.
2: Yeah. Okay. Cool. I mean, I guess from your work with single molecule, um, you would appreciate that um, one of the goals is to overcome this diffraction limit, which is a physical law essentially that limits how well resolved um, you can image an object. So intravital microscopy, what we're really trying to achieve is minimally invasive imaging in a live animal. So we wanna see the physiology in its true biological context. So that means that we wanna overcome a different physical law, which is the depth limit, how deep you can penetrate into the tissue without destroying it. And uh, two photon allows us to do this essentially because it allows us to image in the near infrared range. And um, in that range of uh, light, um, there's a natural optical window so that light can penetrate much deeper. That's essentially the reason why two photon is so good for um, deep tissue intravital imaging. Um, The other advantage, I guess, is that um, essentially what were, we're doing is fluorescence microscopy, but instead of using one photon to excite the fluorescent molecule, we're using two photons and because we've been using two photons, then each photon is half the amount of energy, and uh, that means that uh, there's less, less tissue damage, um, and that allows us to perform volumetric imaging um, over time. So we can can uh, achieve time lapse um, imaging, and uh, so what we get is very complex four dimensional uh, image of the biology in question.
1: Can you maybe introduce also our listeners to the type of research you can only do? with this kind of techniques and that you have some recent publication and your lab has been working on. Uh, Maybe introduce us to the research that you do with these techniques.
2: So for us, um, intravital microscopy is is a very powerful tool for biological discovery because it's allowing us to see uh, processes in live animals that we wouldn't normally necessarily be able to see. Um, A really good example of that is uh, some recent work um, that was done Um, in which we looked inside the bone in a live animal to look at the behavior of this really um, interesting cell called the osteoclast. Now, this is a cell that's formed by the fusion of monocyte macrophage precursors, and it's the cell that resorbs bone. So a bone is constantly being remodeled in real time. So this is a very dynamic, ongoing process in which the body responds to the environment, for example, weight-bearing, and, and so constantly new bone is being made and then old bone is being resorbed. Um, and that's the function of these osteoclasts. And previously, because bone is such an opaque, thick mineralized um, tissue, uh, it was, it, uh, the only imaging that we could do in the bone was destructive imaging in, in, in which the bone is harvested uh, from an animal or, or post-mortem um, and then uh, imaged under a light microscope. So using intravital microscopy, We saw that these osteoclasts, when they resort bone, um, they weren't just formed from from the fusion of these um, precursors, but the osteoclast itself can also break up fission into daughter cells. And then these daughter cells, which we called osteomorphs, could also um, migrate towards each other and fuse to to reform osteoclasts. So that's an incredibly dynamic process that we never would have been able to encounter uh, from the two-dimensional static imaging uh, of the past. So I want to jump
0: on that osteomorph. I know I'm, I'm going to go back to two phonoton in a second, because I think there's a technical question to explore with people. Uh, but that's my microscope nerd coming. But before I get there, with this osteomorph, I was reading that paper and really trying to, you know, I'm, I'm not a bone guy, but I like osteoclasts because they're macrophages. But going from there, how would you describe this osteomorph? Because you basically found a new cell type that was not really appreciated before through this really cool technology where you can actually just see it happening, which lets you really question what else is going on in our bodies that we're not looking at yet. But what would you describe its function and, and and then furthermore, do you think there's then parallels based on what you saw, given that it is a macrophage-esque lineage, do you think there's any other cells that have morphs that we don't know about that you're hunting for next? Maybe if you can give us a preview.
2: Yeah, no, sure. I mean, look, I, I think that's a really inc- interesting question. Um, for us, uh, uh, something that we're trying to grapple with at the moment is the question, why? You know, why would an osteoclast uh, um, uh, essentially fission um, and then recycle? And I guess the, our first stepping point was the fact that uh, conventionally, um, osteoclasts have been thought to have a very short half-life, and that um, when they finish resorbing bone, they undergo apoptosis and die. Uh, of course, that was recently uh, shown in, in very elegant um, parabiosis experiments by Frederick Geisman to be not the case, um, that they are in fact more longer lived than we considered. So, so one of the consequences of being able to recycle is that you could potentially be able to generate cells that would live for much longer and whether they retain some sort of functional specialization that allows them to more efficiently form osteoclasts again is one possibility. I guess the other possibility we're, we're grappling with is the idea that actually osteoclasts are incredibly metabolically active. Um, they have to form this very tight sealing zone on the bone where they pump huge amounts of acid and degradative enzymes into that um, resorption pit to degrade all the um, collagen and mineralized matrix uh, within the bone. Um, and that probably creates a lot of cellular stress, and we're sort of wondering now with the idea that maybe the cell fission is a response to cel- cellular stress, and is a, a you know part of a mechanism for the osteoclast to resolve um, the accumulating oxidative damage um, and so on. So these are sort of areas of very active uh, research in the lab, and and we're hoping that we we might get some answers soon.
1: On that on that note, maybe a more philosophical question, but what how do you see the kind of the original knowledge that is derived from in vitro experiments for example in the, especially in the case of these cells that are so dependent on the environment in which they find themselves na- naturally uh, how what how much do you think having the advantage of using this intravital microscopy of intravital imaging will change what we know about certain uh, cell types and maybe you want to tell us where did the idea come from that the osteoclasts were short-lived? How do the, how, how, why did we think that before? And now you show that that's probably not the case.
2: Yeah, look, I, I think in the terms, in the case of the osteoclasts, the bulk of our knowledge has come from um, in vitro cultures. Um, uh, one of the biggest breakthroughs in, in osteoclasts and bone biology was um, when uh, investigators learned how to culture macrophages and get them to fuse, um, to form osteoclasts in vitro. And uh, of course, under in vitro conditions, we could see that osteoclasts were short-lived. Um, and from that was um, born the idea that, that they are short-lived cells. One of the problems, of course, within in vitro cultures is one, you, you're not completely um, uh, capturing the entire, Uh, in vivo environment there are lots of very very subtle interactions a lot of interactions at a distance that we're only just beginning to unravel um, uh, and a lot of unexpected interactions as well I mean I was just marveling this morning at a new paper describing you know uh, how the brain remembers inflammation that's going on in the gut so so for us I guess um, uh, the value of intravital was that it makes Uh, no assumptions you know what you see is exactly what is happening um of course one of the other uh areas that i have a sort of an opinion on i guess is that um a lot of people are really excited nowadays about um you know 3d cultures and organic typic cultures and that's great as well but from out to our thinking those are still very much in vitro systems in which they're only as good as the inputs that you put into them in other words the rules that govern the behavior of cells within that very limited um, uh, three-dimensional space that you've created. So um, going in vivo allows us to see all these things um, in all, you know, in all its glory, essentially. Um, and, and I guess the other point I would make, um, and something that we learned really early on, is that with intravital imaging, um, particularly to photomicroscopy, which depends on fluorescence we are trying to make the visible invisible. So we go in there, I guess, with our own biases and assumptions. And so we're trying to see what we want to see. And so we're really careful then to really make sure that, um, well, one, what we see is completely reproducible, um, but also more importantly, that we uh, undertake a rigorous process of cross-validation. So in the case of the ostomorphs, uh, it was very important for us to cross-validate and that meant being able to show by flow cytometry that we can see these cells. And then by single cell RNA sequencing to show that the cells were existing in a distinct transcriptional state from the osteoclast and the macrophages from, from which they came. Right, so
0: so I have a follow-up here. Um, before I go back to the two photon, which I think is an important thing people miss. Uh, do you think there's... M- macromorphs? So you have, oh, yeah. you have you have you have osteomorphs, do you think there's a macromorphs? And I don't know if you can confirm or deny that you were hunting for them. But I would be hunting for them if I found out that osteoclasts had this osteomorph state and they came from macrophages.
2: Yeah, look, I think that's a really interesting question. Of course, we see this sort of process um, involving macrophages uh, uh, in um, granulomas, where uh, particularly in response to a foreign body or to infection with an organism that can't be eradicated, uh, the macrophages fuse to form these multinucleated giant cells. Um, we can, al- can also see these multinucleated giant cells uh, in um, pathological conditions like giant cell tumors in bone uh, and also um, some forms of um, uh, uh, vasculitis. Um, uh, called giant cell, um, arteritis. Um, so, so we definitely know that, that they exist and they're out there. I, I think something that you sort of alluded to earlier, which is the possibility that a, a lot of the rules of engagement, so to speak, that we apply to cells and how they behave might not necessarily be complete. I think is a very good one. Um, you know, we, we have this idea that cells, uh, have this cell wall that, that, that that separates them from the rest of the outside world, that each cell is uh, unique, kind of like an individual, that we're all unique, um, and that we retain our self identity, um, uh, even though we interact with others. But increasingly, we recognize that we're, you know, in the same way that when we shake hands, we might be transferring uh, information from one individual to the other. Yeah, so it it may well be that in vivo, when cells interact with each other, no matter how transiently, it's possible that they are also passing on uh, information in other ways uh, that we're only beginning to guess at, for example, through exosomes and membrane transfer and so forth.
1: On that, so I just want to ask one very basic question that I probably should have asked earlier in our conversation. but. So we have osteoclasts, which are basically macrophages of the bone, (laughs) to put in a way. Why do we need macrophages in the bone?
2: So so like Jason, um, my first love was the B cell. My second love, increasingly, is the macrophage. Um, And I think they're incredibly versatile cell. What's really interesting is that um, it seems that throughout our body, we have dispersed from birth macrophages that reside in the tissues and depending on the tissues involved they all have very specialized functions. Um, The one thing that's really interesting about macrophages is is that they're very well programmed I think under homeostatic conditions to clear away dead and dying tissue in a non-inflammatory way Um, and and that's critical for um, tissue homeostasis because if you don't clear away the garbage so to speak you get the accumulation of um, from an immunologist's point of view, you get the accumulation of cytoplasmic and nuclear self-antigens that could trigger uh, an autoimmune uh, response um, and can lead to disease. Um, uh, and, and also, I think macrophages are obviously very important in embryogenesis because as the you know, new um, limb buds form, et cetera, um, you know, the the tissue has to be sculpted to form uh, fingers and toes and so forth. And it's the function of the macrophages to clear away this excess tissue. So in the bone, we think the macrophages form to, uh, so fuse to form these multinucleated giant cells because it's clear that the more nuclei an osteoclast has, the more resorptive capacity it has. So one way of thinking about this is that it may well be that it's a mechanism for it to increase its ability to express the proteins that are required for bone resorption. So, so you know, you can upre- upregulate gene expression, but of course, if you have more copies of the genes, then you can um, uh, um, up- upregulate it um, by multiples of the number of nuclei uh, that you have. Um, and I think, you know, that's what we think is happening uh, in the fusion process.
1: Quick follow-up. Are there other types of cells that are composed of fused New, uh, macrophages. Do you find this multinuclear uh, macrophages in other places besides osteoclasts?
2: Yeah. So 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 so. Um, definitely, um, the classic example is, for example, is when you get infected with uh, tuberculosis, the mycobacteria, uh, mycobacterial infection. Um, the immune system can't eradicate the. Organism. so what it does is it tries to ward off and it forms these structures called granulomas um, and these granulomas are composed of multinucleated giant cells that have engulfed all these uh, mycobacteria but haven't been able to degrade them so we see again this concept that the macrophages are fusing because they're unable to degrade something and so they're trying to increase their degradative capacity um, and we also see So we see them in in granulomas that form in response to um, infections that can't be cleared or in response to inert foreign materials um, that uh, get trapped in our body. Um, We also see them pathologically in these diseases like giant cell arteritis, which is a a vasculitis, uh, inflammation of blood vessels, and in these giant cell tumours that can form in bone. So so definitely um, uh, they're there. Um, and it'll be really interesting if similar rules of engagement apply to them, as 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 apply to the osteoclasts and osteomorphs.
0: Isn't there a similar process in artherosclerosis? So in the foamy macrophages and multinucleated centers, occasionally in large nasty plaques.
2: Yeah. So right. so so you're absolutely right, Jason. And, and I think what's really interesting, and a lot of people have sort of uh, caught on to where w- we might be wanting to go is that um, when the osteoclasts fission into the osteomorphs, we're able to find cells in the circulation that resemble the osteomorphs. Um, and one idea is that is that uh, the osteomorphs uh, are able to enter the circulation and recirculate. And so the idea is that they may be able to go to other bones and form osteoclasts there. And of course, uh, one of the questions is, are they involved in other diseases? For example, in rheumatoid arthritis where osteoclasts are part of this destructive um, tissue called the pannus, which resorbs and erodes the bone in in rheumatoid arthritis. But also there are some uh, interesting similarities between these cells and as you alluded to, the foamy macrophages in atherosclerosis. Um, And so uh, we're sort of very curious about this.
0: Yeah, no, I think this is super fascinating, and I think you know we're gonna see your next paper on uh, what we're we calling it a uh, macromorphs, which, which is an <laughs> awesome name soon enough. But to go back before before we hop into the other side of the cells here, to your first love, uh, the next question I just wanted to really go back in time a little bit was, what is it? And, and I know the answer. I'm fishing for because I think it's really important other people understand when we talk about two photon. Oh, it's two photon. That's like two photons. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, but what is it about two photon that lets you thusly do it on two, you know, on living
2: tissue and bypass the diffraction limit? Yes, yeah, so, so sorry, two, two photon doesn't um, allow you to um, overcome the diffraction limit. It allows you to overcome the depth limit. Yeah. Um, and and so, the, so there are so many advantages of two photon. Um, you know, we can spend an hour talking about this because, um, Uh, yeah, I'm just in awe of the technology, but essentially um, uh, because you're exciting with two photons of half the energy, that means that the photons are twice the wavelength. So normally for fluorescence microscopy, we're using visible light to excite fluorescence Um, because now we're doubling the wavelength. We're moving the excitation wavelength to the near infrared So because it's a longer wavelength, right, two things happens. Uh, One, um, this moves us into this uh, optical window, uh, this natural optical window in which light can penetrate further. And the reason for that is the major cause of light absorption in tissues is due to things like melanin, uh, lipids, um, hemoglobin. And those molecules absorb um, light in the visible spectrum much more than they do in the near-infrared wavelength range. So that means that uh, n- the near-infrared laser can penetrate deep into the tissues. And also because it's a longer wavelength, it can also penetrate deeper. The second thing is that because it's half the energy, then the, um, we don't have any problems with phototoxicity. That is where the light hitting the uh, cell, damages the cell because it's transferring heat Uh, into the cell Um, and because it's half the energy there's much less phototoxicity and that means that we can perform time-lapse imaging so image the same tissue over and over again over very long periods of time Um, in our lab we've imaged uh, as long as 24 hours Um, of course other problems get in the way but but essentially the point here is that we don't have problems in the way much in the way of phototoxicity but also photobleaching I think the other um Thing that is really cool about two photon microscopy is that you get something for free. So there is this um, nonlinear optical process called second harmonic generation. Now, this is where a molecule um, that has a certain physical property um, is able to absorb light and then emit it um, at half the, wa- half the wavelength. So it's also called frequency doubling. Now, the molecule in human, in, in, in biological tissue that does this the most is collagen. And that's because it has this um, uh, uh, repetitive structural units. Um, So we see it for collagen. We can also see it for other um, biological molecules like microtubules. But the point is that a lot of the capsule um, uh, is is made up of collagen. Uh, The bone is is made up of collagen. And so you get um, this label-free imaging that provides a structural information Um, and, and so, uh, you get this incredibly rich, uh, three-dimensional volumetric image. Um, and then you can image it over time. So essentially you're doing four dimensional imaging.
0: So thank you for indulging my nerdiness to help explain to others. Uh, this one, my last real follow-up before I hand it back to Brenda is how the heck do you do imaging for 24 hours on a living creature? That is a lot of anesthesia. Do you guys have shifts? with like people coming in and monitoring the m- mice under isoflurane, which I know is a pain because of the temperature monitoring you have to do. Like, how do you do this for 24 hours straight?
2: Yeah, so, so, so it, it really is a, uh, it is a big challenge. Uh, our biggest concern is actually that the physiological insult that that, um, uh, how that impacts on the biology that we're imaging. So, so we're always super cautious um, when we do do those, some of those long experiments But you're absolutely right. The key is the anesthesia. We need really, really stable anesthesia. um, And we really need to have very careful monitoring. So temperature monitoring in particular is critical because small animals can't maintain their body temperature when they're anesthetized. Um, And you're absolutely right. Um, For some of these experiments, um, we do have shifts. um, uh, Monitoring the sugar levels on the scientists is just as important.
1: And so... Coming back to the kind of research that you can do with this technology, uh, you also looked into other types of structures. So besides bones, you also have really some really nice uh, research on lymphoid structure on B cells and particularly niches within the lymph nodes. Would you like to share with us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, no, thank you. So, so one of the things that we're really keen on as a concept in our lab is the idea that um, cells are incredibly dynamic and um, their behaviours very, is very much context dependent. And that context is provided by the microenvironment in which they find themselves. Uh, and, and so for us, uh, one of the things that was really interesting was um, some recent work, and people ha- have um, you know, um, seen this in a non-dynamic way before, of course, um, which is that after vaccination, you do accumulate memory B cells uh, and also memory T cells in the draining lymph node. Um, And there are more memory B cells in uh, in the draining lymph node than there are in the non-draining lymph node, suggesting that there's a resident uh, uh, population of memory B cells that stay in the lymph node. Um, And so the niches in which they reside, the cells that they interact with with that maintain them in that niche um, is something that's really interesting to us, um, and, and, and we see them localizing in this um, space, um, in the vicinity of the subcapsular sinus macrophages. So there, there are also um, lymphatic vascular endothelial cells, uh, marginal reticular cells. So we think those cells together make up a supportive niche that um, uh, attracts and keeps the resident memory B cells in that location. And um, what's really interesting is that, of course, when um, you encounter antigen it drains the lymph node via the afferent lymphatics and then the afferent lymphatic drains into the subcapture sinus so that is going to be the lymph tissue interface that is where you're going to first encounter a pathogen when it comes into the lymph node and so it makes a lot of sense then in the draining lymph node where you've encountered antigen before to keep the memory b cells in that location so so for us, that was really interesting. And we showed that also when you reactivate the memory B cells in the draining lymph node, they form this very specific structure in that space, in that subcapsular niche, um, which we call the subcapsular proliferative focus. Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense also because the macrophages there are, are, are specialized to activate B cells because they capture and surface retain their, their antigen intact. And also we've, seen um, memory T follicular helper cells um, reside in that niche as well. So this subcapsular uh, niche then can be really important because it provides all the ingredients that you need to generate an an antibody response very rapidly uh, on uh, recall of antigen. So one of the other things that we're really curious about Um, If I can use your question as a segue um, to introduce uh, something else that we're becoming very excited about is how do we interpret the behaviors of the cells that we're seeing in vivo, how do we uh, develop uh, a language uh, or a way to capture their behaviors and understand it and here the problem is one that we always encounter which is that we look at, at it through the prism of our lived experiences. So that means that when we analyze the migration of cells within the lymph node, we think of it in terms of the cell, for example, following a chemokine gradient. So that pulls it in one direction, pushes away from another direction. Um, And that's pretty good. And that can tell us a lot of things. But more recently, I guess, we just started wondering whether that's a very limited worldview and whether we can take a more, agnostic approach uh, in terms of analyzing cell behaviors. Um, and from that, develop a better understanding of what's, um, what's guiding them. Uh, one example might be to think about uh, each cell as being an agent. Um, and of course, there are lots of agent-based models. And one of the interesting things is that out of the behavior of very, some very simple rules of, um, of um, migration, you could generate complex Seemingly intelligent uh, emergent behaviours that might then explain how those cells uh, do what they do. And and that might then give you a hint to what the underlying biology might be. So so for us, looking at how those cells migrate within the the follicle and then within the subcaption niche um, uh, can also be very informative.
0: All right. Well, I know Brenda would keep you here talking about B cells. Well, until the night when she passes out, which will be like, you know, 10 AM for you. Uh, but that being said, we have to wrap it up. And so we always like to end with a couple of fun questions. I'm going to go a little off script since you said we could ask you anything. And I'm going to ask you uh, two very unique ones. The first question is, if you could be any type of immune cell, what would it be and why? And the follow up is if you could be any type of
2: microscope, what would you be and why? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I love that. I love those questions. Well, look, if I could be any immune cell, I would want to be a B cell. I would especially want to be a B cell right now because everybody in the world knows what a B cell is and what it does. Um, uh, You know, I I think we're living in a really um, obviously it's very scary, it's very challenging. But I, I guess one of the things that's very exciting for me is having everybody know what a B cell is, what a plasma cell is, and why antibodies are important. Um, I think there is an increasing literacy about science and what scientists do, which I think can only be can only be good. Um, so I would want to be a B cell. If I could be any microscope I could be, then I would want to be a microscope that hasn't been invented yet. Um, and for me, I think one of the real exciting possibilities is that with a lot of, particularly a lot of these um, so-called nonlinear optical processes, you can achieve label-free contrast imaging without the need, uh, obviously, to have you know genetically encoded fluorescent reporters uh, and so forth. And what that opens up is the possibility of doing intravital imaging in live human subjects. And and to us, for us, ultimately, I mean, what we're seeing the mouse is. Uh, we're hoping is a mirror of what happens in people, but ultimately, we, uh, what we want to do is is understand human biology and human disease. So, if you can come up with a microscope that allows me to do that, that's the microscope I would want to be.
0: So, you want to supersize a microscope and make the human the, the you want to be the supersized human version of your two photon system to see that collagen light up in a person.
2: Yeah, it look, it, it may not be two photon. It may be three. It may be a three photon microscope, for example, which can. Um, image um, label-free contrast between refractive index mismatches and 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 provide you with cellular resolution. Um, it might be a next iteration of you know um, uh, an optical coherent uh, um, uh, tomography, um, which we already are using in the clinic. For example, ophthalmologists are using OCT to look in the back of your eye and seeing you know cellular resolution inflammation going on the eye. I mean, those are really exciting things, and that's where you know, getting down to uh, human uh, biology and human disease um, will be really cool. That's great
1: answers. Yeah, great answers. Thank you. Well, it was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. For listeners interested in your publication describing osteomorphs, we'll put the link in the show notes and uh, published in cell. Congratulations. Very nice. And well, it's it's been really, really, really great to talk to you.
2: Thank you so much.
1: That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at with feedback or to suggest guests suggestions, always welcome. See you next time.